Welcome to the Insight Podcast. In this episode, we have Lloyd Levine, former member of the state legislature and active participant in the technology landscape. He has recently published research on a topic that most tech leaders work on and worry over, the digital divide. My name is Shane Pinnell, and co-moderating with me is Jamie Lou Satter. Welcome to the show, Lloyd. Uh, we have a game that we like to open up all of our podcasts with, and how it works is I'll present a couple categories, you weigh in on your opinion, and we'll also participate just as a way to get to know you and a little bit of an icebreaker. So the first category, beach or mountains, which do you prefer? Either is fine. Beach, mountains, if there's water, I like it. Excellent. Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of hiking, but I agree that the water is so calming. Yes, Shane, what love, about the, you? love the water, but I don't like the sand at the beach, so I'm going to go with mountains. <laughs> nice. uh, Microsoft Word or Google Docs? Uh, Microsoft Office 365. Oh. All right. How about you, Jamie? Um, I prefer Google Docs. Just the, the, able, the ability to collaborate with my team is so yeah. powerful. So yeah, that, that won over for me in the last uh, five years. Yes, absolutely. And then, Lloyd, how about uh, Facebook or Instagram? Facebook. Jamie? Um, I, I think I'd go on Instagram a little bit more, but Facebook gets a little bit crazy in my world. So I, I yes. try to stay away. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just Instagram for me. Facebook's just there so I can manage pages and that's about it. Right. All right. Thanks for playing. And now we're going to jump into our first segment. All right, Lloyd, the, the um, persistent challenge of the digital divide is something that many of our schools are facing and the pandemic has exposed how this needs to be given a much greater priority. Can you tell us how you got started in this work? Sure. I, you know, I got elected to the legislature in uh, 2002, and I was relatively young at the time, one of the youngest members. And uh, my first major piece of legislation, I guess I should say, I, I like technology. You know, as a, as a younger person, I was you know fluent with technology. I like technology. Mm -hmm. um, and my first major piece of legislation was trying to help cite high-speed telecommunications equipment on state property. And the, uh, the, company, the problem was the companies wanted to lease the property, wanted to pay fair market value. Value. Uh, they weren't looking for a sweetheart deal. It was really just a citing issue as to getting permission to do it and the whole process. So we created a process, but then as a condition of that, we also took the money and instead of just putting it in the general fund, we stuck it in a digital divide fund. That mm -hmm. legislation a few years later became the cornerstone for Governor Schwarzenegger's broadband task force, uh, of which I was a member. And so from there, you know, I became chair of the Committee on Utilities and Commerce, which had jurisdiction of broadband, telecommunications, cable, also electricity, natural gas, those sorts of things. And so I, you know, this was a, was a hallmark technology and broadband were a hallmark of my legislative career. During the time I was there, uh, Verizon and MCI merged and AT&T and SBC merged, and a condition of approving those mergers, the PUC required the companies to put money into a digital divide fund uh, that was called the California Emerging Technology Fund. It still is called the California Emerging Technology Fund. I was a founding board member there. And so from there, I just kept going. How long were you in the legislature? Uh, six years. Six and then years. I ran for the state Senate and I lost. Okay. All right. Thank you. So when I was reviewing your research, what I found most interesting were the social implications that you mentioned. So you highlighted education, employment, information, government, and medical as these areas of inequity. And then I think about the rapid adoption of video conferencing, telemedicine, and all the other contactless innovations that happened during the pandemic. I think those are going to really exacerbate this digital divide. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you're defining the digital divide? And then just reflecting since April, how do you think things are changing? 
Well, how do I define the digital divide? It's actually, to me, pretty simple and clear. Um, I wrote a chapter for a textbook a couple of years ago, and I defined it in there in a specific way, because in my research, I had found that there were a variety of definitions for, for the digital divide, but I didn't think any of them were clear or specific. So for me, it's really, it's a three-part test. And if you fail any one of these, you don't have what I term meaningful internet access. That should be the mm -hmm. goal, meaningful internet access. Mm -hmm. So it's a broadband connection with the minimum specified government speed, whatever that is, it changes over time, but minimum specified government speed. If you don't have sufficient speed, you don't have uh, meaningful internet access. If you don't have anything at all, you don't have meaningful internet access. It's an appropriate computing device. And again, recognizing the pace of technology change and the innovation that we're undergoing, I don't specifically say it is a laptop or it right. is a desktop, but I define it as a, a, a set of capabilities. And what I'm really saying right now it, you know, in 2018 when the chapter came out, and that's still true in 2020, is it is not a smartphone. It has to have certain functionality to allow a person to type a resume, to allow an 11th grader to type a paper the same way that they wouldn't be able to do it if all they had was a smartphone. And so, you know, there's the, I put a little more in there. And then the third thing is the skills to use it. You know, I had a, a boss years ago when I first started working for the legislature before I was elected, um, wonderful man, very, you know, very accomplished. Um, but, you know, he was older and it was the forefront of technology and he had a computer in his office and broadband. It was the, it was the 90s. So offices had broadband, but homes didn't. But he didn't know how to use it. So translating that into our world, you know, a family, a household that has a computing device and broadband, but the parents aren't literate enough to help their third grader, digitally literate enough, I should say, mm -hmm. to help their third grader or second grader use the computer, then they don't really have what I would term meaningful internet access. You can't meaningfully engage with the world. That's yeah. great. I think that really expanded the definition for me and specifically my role working for a school district. Yeah, I mean, to, to pick up on that, Jamie, yes, I agree with you, because if you think, as, as I just said, you know, if you go to the circumstances where we are now, where many schools stopped in-person instruction on March, what was it, 16th, but had to get to the end of the school year, you know, if you were in a circumstance where, and, you know, you could start naming broad generalizations of categories of people who might fall into this, but where, you know, a child was, as somebody put it to me, you know, for the, the K through five or six, it's almost as much of a parent issue as it is a technology issue. You, you do need that technology to facilitate the learning. And if the child is in a household where the provider, the educational provider, be it a parent, be it an aunt, be it a grandparent, be it whoever, doesn't have that ability, then it really is no different than not having a broadband connection. Lloyd, you mentioned uh, the difference in the 90s between offices having broadband and homes having broadband. What do you think the current uh, estimates of, of households with, uh, without broadband access is right now? Well, it, it depends upon which you look at. I look at two measures, and I have two very specific scientifically-based measures that I use, so it's not just my guess. The California every year for the last 10 years, 12 years, through the California, Advanced, uh, California Emerging Technology Fund does the annual broadband adoption survey. It's a 1,600-person survey, scientifically conducted, rigorous methodology, et cetera, and they find generally uh, it was between 2010 through about uh, 2018, they found about 30% of households either had no internet at all or internet access only through a smartphone. 
And before I go on, I want to stress that according to the Pew Center, their research a couple of years ago found that those people whose internet access is only through a smartphone suffer harms at about the same level as people with no access at all. And that ties back to what I was just saying. If you imagine you have to apply for a job and I have to apply for a job and I have to format my resume and type my cover letter on a laptop with Office 365 or Google Docs, Jamie, um, and you know the other person only has a smartphone, the person with the computing device, you know, all things held equal is going to finish quicker and their, their materials are going to look better. So, you know, backing up. So in California, we found from about 2010 through about 2018, about 30% of the people did not have uh, internet access. They either, either, you know, no access at all or access only through a smartphone. And the big correlation there was income. The lower you went on the income household income scale, the less likely a family was to be connected. And then in 2019, it ticked up a little bit. And I would say, you know, it's about 25%. I haven't seen this year's data yet, but about 25%. Um, and we think, we don't know for sure, we have to see if that's an anomaly, if it's a trend, what's going on, um, probably due to educational endeavors to connect students, but we don't know yet. That's just, that part's a guess. Pew Internet Center for, Center for Internet and American Life nationally has found about the same thing. Since about 2010, broadband penetration from about 2000 through 2010 climbed dramatically. And at about 2010, it leveled off at about 30%. And again, very closely tied to income. And the income level break is somewhere in the twenty dollars to $30,000 range, uh, household income. You go below that, internet access drops off dramatically. That's interesting. And looking through your paper, um, I saw that that the the adoption was was around thirty percent for broadband access, but it's actually it's going up considerably for people with um with smartphone access. But again, that's not that's not an appropriate device for every task, of course. No, it's not an appropriate device for every task. It's better than nothing. I mean, yeah. I, I'm not even I'm not going to say it's not better. It's better than nothing, but it's mm -hmm. not an appropriate device for every task. There's yeah. multiple limitations to do it. You know, a lot of the low income households whose smartphone access is mobile only. I mean, whose internet access is smartphone. You know, might have data caps. Uh, you know, there's, you know, if, if there's not enough devices for the household, somebody leaves the household with the phone, the phone, the household now does not have internet access. So yeah, that's one of the, that's one of the things I think we found um, when COVID hit was, was we had a lot of people that said that they did have internet access, but it probably was on a smartphone. And, you know, now they're going to work and the kid right. doesn't, the, the internet access device is no longer at home because the parent has gone off to work. So, well, I mean, there, there's a secondary challenge that kind of dovetails with that chain where, it's, you know, you have, so what, when we take these surveys, Pew takes the survey or, or, you know, the, the surveys in California, we ask, do you have internet access? What type do you have? And what device do you use to connect on? What we don't ask is bandwidth. We just ask, you know, is it dial up or broadband? And we don't ask how many devices you have. Yesterday, I was talking to a friend who's in education and, you know, she's a principal at a public school here, you know, and she was saying basically, yeah, we had a problem in my household because we only had one computer. And so they had to acquire additional devices because she had a, you know, her husband worked and her daughter had is in fourth grade and had to do school work. And so that's a, that was a, a relatively common problem as well. It wasn't just no connect, you know, no computing device. It was not an appropriate number of computing devices or not enough bandwidth. Yeah, and we we found so we passed out Chromebooks uh, at the at the beginning of of distance learning to, to a lot of our students. And we, you know, we found that people did have actually broadband in the home, but now we have mom, dad, three to four siblings at home and everybody's trying to get online at the same time. And it, it redefines your bandwidth needs very quickly at that point. 
Yeah, the way I try to explain it, although I, I'm guessing our, our audience is, you know, more technologically savvy, the way I try to explain it is it's like when you're, you know, when you're uh, in the shower and then somebody turns on the kitchen sink and flushes the toilet and all of a sudden the water pressure in the shower drops. <laughs> and you burn. Yeah, and you burn because they took the cold water. <laughs> yep, exactly. That's my house for sure. <laughs> yeah, we found a similar challenge in our district. We're very fortunate in our town. Most families have broadband. I think we have a few um, areas where it's just not good reception through mm-hmm. our ISP provider for our mm-hmm. town. But we found there was just a lack of education generally about bandwidth. And so parents who needed hotspots, it wasn't so much because they had no internet access, they just didn't have enough bandwidth. Mm, And that was a really interesting challenge we uncovered. So we're hoping this summer to do some education for our families on the definitions of bandwidth and what questions to ask when you call your ISP to, Mm -hmm. and and how to do speed tests to even just know what your status is. So that that was an Yes, uh, that's that's a good point, Jamie. We could also do some stuff in our schools, I think, right, with scheduling. We started off saying, like, you need to get on with your students, you know, at 9 a.m. every morning. Let's everybody, everybody get on and do a check-in. Well, that doesn't work very well with those limited bandwidth constraints. So scheduling those scheduling those live check-ins with students or, or live lesson delivery with students, you need to be cognizant of that, that, that we can't tell everybody to do it at the exact same time because it's going to constrain, it's going to cause bandwidth issues for people. The other yeah. thing I should mention now that we, we haven't really addressed is, you know, you asked me, Shane, that, you know, like, what, what is the digital divide number? What are, what are the numbers? The digital divide, we put it in one number, but it's really two things because it's two root different causes. There's an urban divide or urban suburban and a mm-hmm. rural divide. Yeah. And the rural divide is an infrastructure problem. You know, if you don't, you know, you can't buy it because it's not in your community or the facilities haven't been upgraded, so the bandwidth is really slow in your community. In most urban and suburban communities, the bandwidth is there, and it's just an economics issue where people can't, and and this is documented in multiple surveys. Again, the broadband surveys in California, the Pew surveys, the number one reason people are listing going back several years is they can't afford the device or they can't afford the service. In rural areas, it's slightly different. So in California, we have about four and a half percent of the digital divide is made up by people in, in rural areas. That's about 500 to 600,000 rural households that don't have sufficient connectivity. Yeah. I know going through the CTO mentor program, Jamie and I, we were in the same cohort. And I think Nick was working, uh, Nick worked up in, in the uh, northwest corner of the state. And just the challenges for him just to get internet access to his schools, not, not let alone the households, just right. getting internet access to the schools was, yep. was a big challenge for him. Yeah. And then go, you know, if you the northwest corner at least has Eureka Humble, go to the northeast corner. <laughs> So Lloyd, your paper on broadband adoption, it follows three programs that we're trying to solve this challenge about sharing information about low-cost broadband. Can you tell us a little bit more about the impact and what you discovered? Sure. And, and again, you know, what I look at, I look both at California and national, and they serve as a check and balance on each other to a, a degree, with California having 40 million people we're kind of our own nation state. So, you know, and we have huge urban areas as well as huge rural areas. So that gives us, you know, the LA area is akin to New York City, but some of the other areas might be more akin to Wyoming. So we have a really decent laboratory to kind of balance each other out for academic purposes. What I looked at was for the past 10 years, urban efforts at broadband adoption have generally followed one type of strategy. And it's what I call information outreach campaigns doing some sort of outreach to targeted groups who are likely to be disconnected and informing them of something. 
early on, it was the benefits of the internet. You know, we, they, they might not know what the internet is. It was new. So for the last number of years, it's been, and, and I should say, I ran three specific projects in, in California on specifically trying to address the issue, identifying low-income populations, providing them with information that addressed the number one thing they list, price, and seeing what that did to adoption. So we had three different projects with three different electric utilities, uh, SMUD in Sacramento, the Sacramento Municipal Utility District, uh, the uh, San Diego Gas and Electric, uh, where we partnered with 211 San Diego as a call center, and in Sacramento we had a different call center, and then in Los Angeles, SoCal Gas, again with 211 Los Angeles as a call center, and we, through these programs, we tested various outreach methods uh, using the utility, because nobody knows who the California Emerging Technology Fund is, you know who your utility provider is. We use the utility to outreach to their low-income customers with some version of, so you're enrolled in our low-income program, you might also be eligible for this, you know, et cetera, call this number. And what we found was even in the most intensive situation, which was the SMUD program, where there was the most trusted utility with the highest level of consumer assistance on the backside, we didn't really move the needle. And so my conclusion from that really is, um, and, and I guess I should say, I rolled up a lot of different data to, to model this, this conclusion. There was multiple levels of the broadband adoption survey. There was a 300-person focus group for low-income households. There was the pilot projects that we did. And when you start to put all of this together, you come to the almost inescapable conclusion that, you know, price of device and service is the biggest issue, but when informed of existing low-income affordable offers already offered by the ISP, those offers and the computing device cost are still outside the reach of these families. Because you look at the survey data and the focus group data, and what you find is with people without broadband um, or, or low-income households who are not on affordable offers, 75% of them say we want information. So you're saying, okay, well, you want information, and we're giving you information, and you're still not enrolling. And in the SMUD program, we actually stayed on the phone and helped you enroll, and you're still not enrolling. The enrollment in the SMUD program is 1.2%. Um, 1.21%. So we sent out 90,000 letters and we got just under 1,100 adoptions. And so you're left with the conclusion that either these programs are totally ineffective at enrollment or providing information about low-cost programs to people who can't afford it just doesn't work. Yeah. So my, my, my takeaway is we need to look at a system that's more like electricity or lifeline for telephones that's providing people assistance. Now, I will segue here before I end my little monologue. I think there is a silver lining. Mm -hmm. um, and that silver lining, Jamie, is, goes back to what you, you asked earlier and Shane, what you said and I found in other school districts. You know, the digital divide is a three-part test and a device is part of that test. Mm -hmm. uh, my kids are in Sac City Unified School District. There's about forty to 45,000 students, depending upon which measurement of enrollment you use. And we're not going to get into that. That's a whole other policy question. The district distributed 25,000 computing devices. So you now maybe have taken care of part of that, the device yeah, portion yeah. of that. A third so, of the equation, yeah. Right. So now we can figure out the other side, the, the, the connectivity side. And I think if you figure out the connectivity and the device side, the skill side becomes a little bit easier. Yeah. 
So you noted a finding in the 2019 California data out of Berkeley that showed an 8% gain in broadband adoption. What did you find there? Well, you know, that was, you know, an uptick. So in 2019, as I said, as I said earlier, from about 2010 to 2018, home-based broadband adoption was flat. We did see an increase during that time in cell phone only adoption, but land-based adoption was flat. And then in 2019, it ticked up. That uptick occurred in houses with K-12 students. So Mm. we, you know, we don't know enough yet to know exactly why we can surmise from looking at the data that potentially it was due to school districts efforts at bringing more students online. Um, Natomas Unified School District, for example, they ran a drive where, you know, prior to this, where they paid for internet access for a thousand low-income students. That was, you know, a thousand students in that district, about 10% of their, their, their district. So, you know, you start looking at those sorts of factors around the state and you said that potentially could be the uptick. It could have been an anomaly um, or it could be a trend or it could have been, you know, partial trend and an anomaly on top of it. We're not going to know until we see more data. Um, but, you know, and I should, I guess along those lines, Shane, you asked me something again a, a while ago and I answered, but there's an additional level of data that I think might be useful for this podcast. Both the California surveys and the Pew surveys find that in K-12 households, uh, meaningful internet access is about 15%. And again, tied to income. So, you know, in, you know, if you're in a district like Sac City Unified School District where my kids go and it's 70% free and reduced lunch, you're going to have to pass out a lot more computing devices and do a lot more than you might do in, in wealthier districts. So in K-12, but, it's 15% of the of K-12 households do not have broadband access. Don't have meaningful internet access. Right, they versus 30% have, of the general population. Right. Now, okay. again, but that goes back to, okay, wait a minute, Lloyd, you're saying 15% don't have access, but a while ago you said 25,000 devices out of 40,000 students. The math isn't quite right there. They may not have enough devices that, you know, there are some of them that might have, you know, meaningful internet access, but also be just under-resourced. So I think this is a good a good time to just really thank all the school leaders that really pioneered the one-to-one programs over the last 10 mm-hmm. years or so. I think, you know, they may be helping, if that's not an anomaly and actually a trend that you discovered, um, they may be helping close this. And again, I think it's important to highlight the definition of meaningful internet access because that is something that's very actionable for our communities. Like they can really think about device skills. The two things that they can control are, are helping kids get devices and then teaching the skills to the families. I think that's super interesting. Yeah. And the districts themselves, I think, can play a role in ensuring the broadband access. How's that? Well, you know, during the pandemic, districts, you know, at least districts that I've talked to, surveyed their, their mm-hmm. students to find out what the, the, the problems were. They worked with the internet service providers. Some of them provided free access. So they, they can be a point of contact with the internet service providers, there's multiple ways they could do it, but you know, they could negotiate directly with the internet service providers because we found historically that there's a problem with low-income households going on and off and on and off. Well, that on and off connectivity doesn't help. If your kid has right. connectivity in September, but not October, but then again in November, but not in January, like that doesn't really work for them. So you need that continuity of connectivity for the entire school year. And a school district working with the ISPs can do that in a way that an individual family can't. 
Ah, yes. I was also wondering if we could bring in our city government to support that. If they have contracts with ISPs, could there be some negotiations at that level to ensure better speeds, uh, pricing, and yeah, you know, uh, part absolutely. of the negotiation to come into a town might be to support the school district and families? Yes, absolutely. And I've advocated for that for a couple of years now. Um, again, the collective negotiating power of a city versus a county. You know, when I've talked to different cities around the state, you know, what, what can we do? You know, our goal is to become a gigabit city. Okay, that's great. But why are you subsidizing your wealthier families? Why not focus instead of trying to provide, you know, being the city to be the provider for everybody? Why doesn't the city let the commercial side work where it's working? Uh, yeah. You know, for example, I have a choice of three providers at my house and I have gigabit service. I don't, you know, I pay for it. I don't need the city to subsidize me. And I would argue, you know, that's probably not the wisest use of tax dollars, but focus on those who don't have access. Um, and, you know, and that's a, a better use of tax dollars. So whether it's the city or the school district, whomever working directly with the internet service provider to ensure that the low income households have connectivity is important. And then the other thing that, that ties in with that, and we've learned this from you know, other endeavors, the one that people always throw out is recycling. You know, getting parents to recycle started to happen when students in school were taught to recycle and they come home, you know, no mom, don't throw that can there, put mm -hmm. it here instead. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know, if the student is learning how to use the computer at school and then bringing that computer home and using it at home, that is bringing skills, device, and connectivity into the household that a parent could then use to apply for a job. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering, because you were talking about bringing, bringing access into the home. So we're, we bought quite a few uh, hotspots, cellular mm -hmm. hotspots for our devices. Yeah. What are your thoughts on those? I, I, don't, I don't see them as being a long-term solution or, or something that's maybe economically sustainable for us. Uh, it certainly fills some gaps for us. But what are your, I'm just wondering what, if you had thoughts on those. That's exactly it. That's not a long-term solution. Um, it does, uh, you know, and there's technological challenges, there's cost challenges, but it's certainly filled a gap. And, yeah. you know, what I've been trying to tell folks, but, you know, over the last several months is there were a lot of things that happened from March until the end of the school year. And from my viewpoint, every school district in the state deserves credit for just yeoman's effort at what they did, you know, from teachers to district. I mean, it was a Herculean effort under incredibly challenging circumstances. And we now need to shift from that Herculean but ad hoc approach to a more systemic approach. Yeah. So hotspots might have helped because you can get them out, you can get them quickly, you can get them out quickly, you can do all of that. But there's, you know, there's obviously issues with that. Now we're transitioning into September, uh, you know, August, September, depends upon when you, you start school. And so from when I started talking to folks about this, I was using the term three months, but honestly, we're on July 1st now. So some of these school districts it's six weeks from now, we're looking at, at least from what I'm seeing, with the exception of a little bit yesterday from the American Academy of uh, Pediatricians arguing that maybe we do need to reopen the schools fully. I'm not a health expert, so I'm not going to weigh in on that debate. You know, my health care policy advice is don't get sick. And, we're done. As we're transitioning, it seems to me in talking to folks that we're going to have some sort of shutdown in the fall, yeah. that school districts around the state are talking about a hybrid approach to education where some students go two days a week and distance learn three days a week and their companions go another two days a week and distance learn three days a week. It's just, it's, it, you know, it seems to be some sort of hybrid approach. And then, you know, 
I would expect that if you open the schools fully in some district just to give it a shot, and I would not fault a district for doing that. I really wouldn't. If you had a low-income district that said, we're just going to do this because we have to for the best education for our kids, great. But I would also expect that if the you know, disease comes into the schools in some sort of meaningful way, they're probably going to have to shut it down. And yeah, so, we certainly need to be pre- prepared for for that, right. for sure. And that's my caution. That's what I, you know, what I'm saying is we know what's likely coming in, you know, in September, October, November. Um, everybody's talking about what's going on now, but everybody's also pointed to then as a really big second wave. The districts need to focus on the things they could do now to mm-hmm. set their, themselves and their teachers and their households up so that we're more systemic and less ad hoc in yeah. the, in the fall. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. We surveyed our families and currently we have 20% saying they're staying home. So we know with certainty we're going to have a distance learning track of students. And we're thinking about cohorts. So we'll have, you know, kids on every other day schedule or every other week schedule. We're working out those details. But we met with a, we have a parent planning committee and we have some really great experts. So one uh, works at JPL and she's in charge of all of the reopening for that. that Yeah, that's not really fair, Jamie, that you have JPL in your backyard. I will share those resources. (laughs) It's so exciting. But she talked about how there's, you know, the minute we're going to design these amazing schedules, but the minute there is a positive case, that all goes away. So the one constant we do know is distance learning. So I I think that's just a really valid point that I want to make sure everybody is hearing and and thinking on. Um, And I I like the idea of building in those systems that ensure that we move away from the ad hoc and the reactive mode. Yeah. I I think one thing that, that we, that I've certainly learned through this is, is we have to plan for multiple eventualities. It's not just going to be one, it's going to be multiple mm-hmm. eventualities. And we have to yeah. be, which means we have to be, uh, we have to be planning systems that are very flexible. Um, it can't just, it can't, it can't just be the way that we've always done it. Uh, we can't just pick one solution. We have to, we have to build systems that can, that can change with the times. And you know what, Shin, that, that's actually dovetails into a point I, in my research that uh, one of the papers that I sent you guys that I think you read and that I've been trying to make is everybody focuses on the digital divide on the student side of things mm-hmm. where, you know, oh, how many computers do we get in the classroom? One of the things that I identified, you know, and I, I use academic terms in the paper, but I call it content production and content receiving you know the content producer is not just the teacher it's the teacher it's the school it's the principal it's the school district but it's the ability to take content and deliver it to the household so it doesn't matter how connected the household is if they don't have good academic materials coming into the household. And that could be many reasons. You know, one example I've given in, you know, in some interviews and some talks is if you're in a rural district and you have connectivity at the school, but the teacher lives 45 minutes from the school and doesn't have connectivity in their house, which is not an unreasonable scenario in a rural area. How is that teacher going to provide content? And at that point, it's also not on the teacher alone to provide the content. It's on the school district and the school to ensure that the teachers have the ability to instruct their children or their their students to deliver the content, the content production. And that could take many forms. It could be in a, you know, in an urban area where the digital literacy skills of a teacher 
aren't developed enough for the crisis. They're just, they're fine when they're in the classroom, but there's a different level of connectivity or skills needed for Google Classroom and Zoom mm -hmm. meetings and, you know, and trying to understand which is best and YouTube and all of those sorts of things. So, you know, that side of things is very important because without it, it, it you know, it doesn't matter how good the household is. Yeah. And I think it's important to kind of extend that definition that we're looking at tech proficiencies for our students constantly. And sometimes there's a false assumption as a digital native, they know how to do everything. And, and I would argue that there isn't always a depth of understanding right. that they do need very specific skills on digital citizenship and literacy. And that that also extends to the family. So I really liked your idea you mentioned earlier about recycling. And that could be a component of our digital citizenship and literacy programs that part of the lesson is the kids go home and it's, you know, teach this to your parent, bring back the experience and tell us what happened. I mean, that's such an easy way to capitalize on that concept. I really like that. We well, also found, oh, please. Sorry. So, so CETF, the California Emerging Technology Fund, which I've referred to a number of times, actually has a program that we started, oh gosh, a decade ago called School to Home. And it's in middle schools, and it started in two middle schools around the state, and it's now in 30-something middle schools around the state. And it is exactly that. It's a wraparound program. It's expensive, but it's a wraparound program that involves the teacher, the students, and the parents, and getting the device, bringing it home, and using that as a way of getting it into to the household. And, you know, again, it's because when you get it in the household, then everybody can benefit from the device. You, yeah, you, absolutely. You, you can use it to find, you know, to, uh, to overcome the barrier that I talked about earlier that says households with smartphone only access have the same problem, you know, same problems at the same level as those households with no access at all. So there is a model out there in school to home that yeah. works for this. Yeah, I have a, a story from a previous district I worked in. When we had gone one to one, the Chromebooks went home and uh, one of the parents or one of the students came back and told us a story about how her mom was able to use that Chromebook at a Starbucks because they didn't have Wi-Fi to apply for a job. She got the job and then she brought Wi-Fi into the home. So it was, it just kind of built yeah. upon itself. Be very and, powerful, you know, powerful. and using that, you know, I mean, I've referred to the Pew studies a number of times. You know, one of the other things that Pew found is if you use a computing device to find a job, you get it, you find that job faster and you keep it longer. Again, ceteris paribus, everything else equal. You, you find it faster and keep it longer than someone who didn't use a computing device. If you're trying to get a promotion, you're more successful in getting a new job if you're using a computing device at home. I mean, this is, we're, all, we're talking about at home or, or mm -hmm. relatively not at work. You know, so there, there's multiple benefits to a program where you can use those devices to, to help the entire household. Yes, it's for the student, but it can help the household as well. And I was just thinking, um, so we're talking about, you know, students access, uh, you know, getting the, the household up to speed also. Um, but one thing we also need to do as uh, as technology professionals is make, make sure that the services that we're providing are able to scale appropriately and, and can be flexible. I was pleasantly surprised when COVID hit, uh, we had, you know, some video teleconferencing capability. We use WebEx, but I know other people are using Zoom and Google and, and Microsoft Teams. I think all of those kind of major players in that space, there were some initial challenges, uh, some initial difficulties. We would see some outages, but they really pivoted very quickly or not pivoted, but they really accelerated very quickly. Um, and we're able to throw resources at it, I think, and keep up to speed. Uh, but we just, I think that um, knowing that we're, we're going to have to 
to be flexible, I think we need to be mindful of that, of saying, you know, this is a service that we're using. Is this service going to work when we're doing full distance learning? Is it going to work for us when we're back in the classroom? Is it going to work for us anywhere in between as well? It's not a question that we necessarily had to ask before, but we definitely do now. Mm -hmm. Right. We're asking a lot of questions we didn't have to ask before. Yeah. So this has been a really interesting and, you know, uplifting conversation is such a big challenge that we're trying to tackle. But I think that we are seeing hope through some of the work that the schools are doing and having a clear understanding of the problem really helps us come up with more creative solutions. So whenever I tackle a big project, I like to use the design thinking model to really identify the exact problem. So I think sometimes being a tech leader, we are so quick to react. We are uh, programmed by our ticket systems, phone calls, walk-ins to the office to just instantly solve problems. And for me personally, coming out of the classroom, having 30 kids or 36 kids in front of you and a problem happens, you fix it fast. You don't really analyze the root cause. You just, you get it moving because the kids (laughs) are in front of you. And I think in the, in the education world, especially technology, we're programmed to be that, that kind of reactive. So I'm always interested in the more proactive approach. And I found that design thinking really lends itself to help you with that. Because if you do define the problem, you tend to come up with more creative solutions that you might not have thought of. So one strategy I specifically use is called quick wins, bold moves, and game changers. So just to define that, a quick win is something that you can do instantly. Overnight, you can make this change and it has um, an interesting impact. It makes a difference. A bold move is something that takes a little bit more work and obviously makes a higher impact, but still something that's doable within within your um, abilities. And then the last one is game changer. And this is where you just pretend gravity doesn't exist. What would be some ideas or solutions you could come up with? And often when you break through to that level of creativity, you can find something that you never thought of before because you're not being held back by conventional barriers. So I think when we think about the digital divide in that realm, or again, now that we have a clear understanding of the the true problem we're trying to solve, and it is meaningful internet access, Lloyd, I wanted to ask you, what are three things that you think our tech leaders and tech professionals um, in the education space can do right now to impact the digital divide? This, This is such a tough problem to do something uber quickly that will solve it, but I like your approach. Um, you know, I always ask the same question. You know, what is the problem you're trying to solve? And focus on that. So you know, in, in one of the papers I wrote, I, I had five specific points that school districts could and should do. I don't know how quick any of them are. They're not tomorrow. They are ensuring you know, kind of addressing some of the points we talked about, creating a system that ensures that the teachers survey your teachers now and ensure that they can deliver content to the households. That eliminates a variable. So what, you know, what COVID did was it to a degree inverted the paradigm of education where, you know, traditionally most households send their kids to school for six to eight hours a day, they get educated there, and then the parents supplement it at home with some level of of homework, that flipped it around. It didn't do a complete flip because the schools are obviously still more involved. It's not, you know, 100% on the the parents or even 90% on the parents, but it did flip it around. So that injected variables, and you have to start eliminating those variables. And it when a child goes to school, and I will stipulate now, yes, I understand there's variables in the classroom. There's variables based upon 
the students in the classroom. There's right. variables based upon the teachers, et cetera. But those are variables we understand and we've known about and they exist. Um, and they're, you know, we're talking new variables here. And ensuring that the teachers can provide the content so that my third grader and the third grader in the next school district over or the next school over aren't receiving different levels of education based upon the abilities, technological capabilities or technological equipment limitations of the, of the teachers. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And just to clarify, not all of these are overnight solutions. So, you know, you have full range. Some things will obviously take a little bit more time and, and right. some, some Six longer weeks. term planning. But but I would start, you know, survey the teachers to understand mm-hmm. that side because that's one variable you can eliminate. You know, so, so that's one side of the equation. Because what I found is, you know, I created a, a graphic for, for a paper and I looked at all sorts of variables. Uh, uh, Laurel is actually very helpful in creating that graphic with me. And that is, it's, it's almost for the most part, not a matter of if a student's going to fall behind, but how far they're going to fall behind. Mm -hmm. And the more variables we can eliminate, we'd solve two problems. We reduce the number of students who are going to fall behind and we reduce the distance that they fall. So that's one. So number two is doing the same thing, but on the student side, Mm -hmm. kind of what we talked about, ensuring that everybody's got appropriate bandwidth, appropriate computer devices at home, and then what I call the non-technology, the technology, I guess it's technology and non-technology skill sets of the household to assist that child. Can my, can a, a third grader, can a fourth grader, can a 10th grader, whatever it is, does that household have the ability to receive the content and, and then complete the assignment and then resubmit the content. I'm not saying parents should be able to be chemistry teachers because Lord knows I couldn't do that, but they should be able to help the child uh, or the student bring the content into the house, understand you need to accomplish this by this day and resubmit it. You know, Mm-hmm. You know, your chemistry test is due this day. Your history assignment is due this day. Here's uh, those sorts of things to ensure the parents can do that. Because right now, again, you know, you have huge levels of variability. You have households mm-hmm. where the parent is the, is also a teacher and able to help, where you've got technology skills present in the household where that makes it easy to help. And then you've got others who, you know, you know students who may be straight-A students, but they're going home to low-income households where they don't have the technological resources. English is spoken as a second language, and the educational attainment level of the parents wasn't, you know, maybe post-elementary school or even post-high school, and and maybe it occurred in a different country. Um, and these are not, you know, in California, that's not an uncommon scenario where you're dealing with ESL students. Your level of assistance to help that straight-A student is going to be a lot higher because they're going to suffer, you know, greater disparities because of the circumstances they're coming in. They go to school, they're, you're removing that, that set of variables, but now they're at home. So working on the parent side of things as well, those are the, the kind of the quick wins, you know, and then longer term, setting up a system so that we can provide devices, even when we're post-COVID, that we can ensure our students have connectivity. Some of that is provided currently through libraries and other, you know, after-school resources. Um, and part of our problem has been those same resources that were used by students who weren't connected are also shut down. And so those those yeah. tools have been removed. But ensuring that they have computers, um, 
so that you're not dependent upon Starbucks at nine o'clock at night because you're still going to be at a competitive disadvantage if you know you have to go to Starbucks and your neighbor has you know a computer at home at nine o'clock at night with full internet access and a laser printer they're going to mm-hmm. have advantages I'm not saying I'm saying their outcomes are going to be better but statistically they're going to have advantages they're going to help them achieve better outcomes so you know that side of things that would be another and then really long term you know, integrating technology into lessons in a, in a different way, utilizing technology to its maximum capacity. Maybe in some circumstances, I would never suggest replacing classic literature books, but maybe, you know, some places you can use worksheets online, you know, lesson planning, maybe take a Khan Academy type concept. My, my daughter was doing Eureka math, but, you know, you could do Eureka math in a more rich uh, iterative process online than you certainly can on worksheets. Some of those things I think maybe now is an opportunity to capitalize and really integrate technology into our educational systems to an even greater degree. I mean, you mentioned the one-to-one earlier, but to an even greater degree, we could could be doing those sorts of things. And I think that's an important note that um, our our tech leaders that are listening really make sure they have a seat at the table with the curriculum to really evaluate the purchases that are happening with new materials and textbook adoptions. And really just, you know, if, if your textbook adoption rating form does not have a component about technology and accessibility, you know, you really need to get that settled in your districts. I think that yeah. really help. You know, I think I think all of our curriculum does have some aspect of of an online component, but it, it always kind of feels like it's a tack on or it's an add on. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not the it's not the prime. It's not the meat of the subject. And well, I think that, and well, Shane, to, to interrupt, but, but that could be that yeah. could be that could go both ways, though. It could be a fault of the technology aspect, but it could also be a tacit recognition that thirty percent of the students or whatever it is in the district don't have the ability to complete this assignment online. Right. So we're not going to, you know, just we're not going to invest in it. Yeah, you know, yeah. lowest common denominator. Everybody's got a paper and pencil at home, so everybody gets mm-hmm. to do it on paper and pencil. Yeah, well, I think what we've learned through this is um, we need both. Right. And that goes back to the, you know, the, okay, for a long time, schools were hesitant to let books, Chromebooks go home. You know, I, 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 you know, I did some rough estimates. I'm thinking, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, there's a lot of ways you could look at this, but okay. So could a child get through from second grade to 12th grade with two Chromebooks? Maybe, maybe three, um, four, you know, three or just four. Like, three or four. Three or four. <laughs> like, you know, it depends upon how hard they are on it. It depends yeah. upon the way you build that Chromebook's memory and everything else. Yeah. So you're not having to issue a new Chromebook every year. Are there right. ways that, you know, but starting to allow students, at the, in, instead of quickly doling out 25,000 Chromebooks in one district and, you know, 3,500 in another district or, you know, working out a way that we get the Chromebooks home on a regular basis. My daughter, for example, every night, my third grader, every night from September until the end of the school year had to do two things on her computer. That's separate from anything else she might have needed to do, like her big Habitat report at the end of the year, but she had to do Moby Max and she had to do typing.com. So what if you don't have a computer in the household? How are you accomplishing those skills? Maybe maybe they're going to the library, maybe, you know, but again, we're looking at disparities looking at eliminating disparities so let's let them take the computers home yeah Yeah, and we we have the frameworks in place to to do that sort of thing right we have we have the williams act in california where we know that we have to provide resources um and and perhaps because of of the current crisis that we're in maybe maybe we can now define a computing device as one of those resources that we need to provide right 
Well, I mean, and you know, the, the Williamson Act is a great example. I've talked about that. And even going back further to Brown v. Board of Education, separate but equal isn't equal. Yeah. You know, and how do we play that out? Separate but equal was applied to segregation, but you could apply it to technology as well, you know, or, or a different lawsuit, you know, that supplants, that comes, you know, builds on Brown and says, hey, wait a minute, you know, these students here versus these students here. And it's, you know, and it's not just within a household. Some districts are technologically savvy. Some others might not be as technologically savvy, but they're all theoretically competing for the same spot at a CSU or a UC school. Yeah. And so where they are in third, fourth, seventh, eighth, 10th grade with technology and their ability to learn is impacting their ability to get into those colleges. Yeah, so we, so we talked about uh, quick wins. We talked about bold moves. What about some potential game changers? I know that there's some districts around uh, around me that are looking to build their own LTE networks using the community broadband spectrum that's available. Uh, it seems like that's kind of, that could be a game changer. What are, what are your thoughts on on those sort of initiatives? You know, that kind of goes to depends. That's my favorite answer. People hate <laughs> it. They're like, oh, do you like, well, it depends. There's a lot of, you know, you've got a lot of school districts around the state, right? There's a lot of variable circumstances right. around the state. So it's not a one size fits all approach. I'm going to go back to Jamie's question that I like to ask also, what problem are you trying to solve? And is that solution the most appropriate solution? You know, maybe in some in low income areas that might be the best solution, or is it more appropriate to go work with the internet service providers? Um, you know, in our area, we've got three of them, but you know, in some areas, they may only have two. Work with the internet service provider, figure out the same way that the school district surveyed the, the, the families, figure out which families need help, which families don't. Then the school district or the city, as we talked about earlier, negotiates with the ISP to ensure that service is turned on continuously for those households in need. Same yeah. as the free and reduced lunch type programs. You know, we know that broadband is essential for education. Broadband and a computing device is essential for education. So let's ensure that they have those things. And so maybe it is building your own network, but I also see you know, it's expensive to build and run and maintain a network. The internet, the existing internet service providers do that as their regular course of business. Right. Um, and so maybe, you know, that's the way to go, go about it. Um, you know, the scenic is another option in some places where you could, you know, you could look to them. So there's a, there's a number of options that might not be building, building your own network might not be the best solution, but I'm not going to say it's never the best solution. Right. I, I don't know. Yeah. Thank you. I should, I should also add that in, you know, in some areas, I think it was LA, they partnered with the PBS station. So they pushed content out via PBS. You know, so maybe that's another way of looking at it. There's, yeah. there's a number of different solutions that, that are out there. But the real question is, what are you doing to ensure that my student has sufficient technological capacity for their schooling from, so I'd, I'd say 12 months out of the year, but from at least from September to June? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess I'll close with this, Shane. Is it cheaper to negotiate with an ISP? So most of the ISPs have all, in fact, all of the ISPs in California have an existing affordable rate, low income right. rate, somewhere in the $9.95 to $15 a month with some 
you know, limited variety. Some have Wi-Fi, some don't have Wi-Fi. It's a wired modem only. The, you know, some have different speeds based upon certain factors, but they're all in that, you know, in that range. But that's on an, that's on an individual household basis. So if, you know, if Charter is negotiating, you know, with an individual household, this is the rate we're offering. But if the school district comes in and says, we want to negotiate with you to provide service from this date to this date for 25,000 students and yeah. we're paying for it, not them. Is it $4? Is it $5? What is it that it gets down to? And is the cost of that cheaper than building your network with the delays and getting it up and running than the maintenance of it and the upgrade of it? And by the way, the maintenance factor is something we also haven't talked about in all of this. And I'd be remiss if I didn't suggest that as we are looking at transitioning to distance learning, school districts ought to also look at tech support. Um, in Sac City Unified School District, the teachers were discouraged from helping on the technical side because we have a tech division within the school district, but that tech division really was designed to help the teachers in the campuses, not right. 45,000 you know, students. And so there were challenges there as well. You know, you don't want, and, and I've advocated for this when I've talked to private sector companies who are looking to get into this space to contract with, with school districts, you know, you don't want your chemistry student, you know, your, your high school student who's got a chemistry assignment, a history assignment, an English assignment in 10th grade to all of a sudden have their computer crash at 8.30 at night and have no ability to solve that problem. So yeah. you need to create devices that are simple enough to where it's hard for somebody to screw it up, and we all do that unintentionally. And you need to create a system where if that happens, that, you know, that there's a way of fixing it so that they can yeah. get their assignments done on time. Yeah, absolutely. So one other element to this that I think we've we've talked about quite a bit, but just to highlight my point of view on how this could be a quick win, I think that schools really have an opportunity with parent academies that they could create some trainings. And I've heard of some successful districts that have done this when they've done launches with devices, they'll make sure there's a parent training component. But what we discovered during distance learning is it's not only tech skills that the parents need, but they also need to know the language that the teachers are talking about. So if you can imagine if you've never heard the words Google Classroom or Seesaw or Flipgrid or Edpuzzle and you get your third <laughs> grader home with upload your Flipgrid to the Edpuzzle in the Google class. I mean, it's just you're speaking, you know, a different language. So, yeah. you know, a quick win for me is just creating a jargon document and sharing that with families and letting them know everything that's in your district that they may see the kids bring home. Yeah, no, I, I agree, Jamie. And and I said that earlier and I've said that before, you know, particularly, particularly for the K five, K six group, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's as much of a parent issue as you know technology issue. There, there's, you know, a couple of curves. You know, the younger you are, the less you need technology, but the more you need parental assistance. The older you are, the longer you're gonna need the technology to complete the assignments, the less you're gonna need your parents' help to do it. You know, when you're in tenth grade, it's just gonna be do your chemistry homework. I use chemistry because that's one that it, you know most parents would be woefully unqualified to assist their children with regardless of anything, you know. So, you know, they're not going to help them with their chemistry homework, but they're going to tell them they need to be done. When they're in second grade, there's going to be a little more hands-on there, and mm -hmm. the time involved is going to be different as well. So particularly for those K-5 students, but even a little bit to the older students, just kind of like what what is your role in distance learning? We, You know, that was really never 
mm-hmm. officially communicated in a way, and I'm sure some parents struggle, like, what is my role here? What am I supposed to be doing? So I, th- I think you're, you're right that there has, and I do call for that as well. It's not just about the technology. It's about facilitating the household's ability to assist their students, and that, that manifests itself in multiple ways. We had that exact question asked at our board meeting last night. The parents said, what is my role going to be in distance learning? If you tell me now and get me training, I can do this. And I thought that was pretty encouraging. Yeah. Thank you very much to our special guest, Lloyd Levine. And as always, a shout out to our site staff, Laurel Nava, Tuta Bentitao, Andrea Bennett for supporting this podcast. And our call to action for our site listeners, we want to make sure that you get your nominations in for our annual site awards. The categories are our Regional Community Award, Technology Leader Award, Educational Leader Award, and Technology Partner Award. So get your votes in. There'll be notes for you with this podcast. And closing out, Lloyd, we'd love to give you a minute of airtime. So um, anything you want to say in terms of shout outs, gratitude, appreciation, the mic is yours. Well, first of all, thank you guys for having me on to talk about this incredibly important topic. You know, this is this is vital to millions and millions and millions of children across the state. And we have a very limited window in which to get ready for the next semester, which we know is going to involve technology and distance learning. I also want to thank the UC Riverside School of Public Policy, uh, the UC Riverside School of Education, uh, for their work on this um, and for their support and encouragement over the years. I want to thank the California Emerging Technology Fund and the Pew Center for doing all of the data work to collect the data so we understand the problem that we're trying to solve. Without the annual broadband adoption survey by CETF that they commissioned through IGS Berkeley, FieldPoll, and others, and without the work by Pew, we'd be shooting in the dark, or at least I would, because you know I, we wouldn't have this data to understand what we're trying, the problem we're trying to solve. And really just, you know, that's it. And thank you. I guess the last thing I'm going to say, thank you to all of the teachers and parents around the state. Uh, I know firsthand, frankly, from the parent side, how hard the last several months have been and the challenges involved. Um, And, you know, I know many people face challenges much greater than than, uh, my wife and I did in providing our kids education. And so just thank you to every teacher who stepped up, every teacher who was awake at two or three in the morning, every parent who was making sacrifices faces. It's a real hardship right now. And all we're doing is trying to get the kids to, to keep going as best we can. So Lloyd, if anybody wants to, to follow you or, or reach out to you, how can, how can they get a hold of you? Are you on social media at all? I am on Facebook. I am on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram. And I think it's relatively easy. I didn't go for one of those, you know, catchy things. I think I am Instagram. I'm like at the Lloyd Levine. Twitter, I think I'm just at Lloyd Levine. Facebook, same thing. LinkedIn, same thing. It's really pretty easy to find me. Yeah. All right. Great. And then one final question for you. Would you rather have a bill passed that gives everyone in California free Wi-Fi or a free college education? That's the response we wanted. If only our listeners could see his face. <laughs> there was a large exhale, I will just say. There was a, wow. Like that was that's what's the what's the there's a my, one of my favorite movies. That's not that's not a that that's not a soup question, is it? Um no. that was uh, Sean Connery and what was the name of the Finding Forrester, if you've ever seen yes, this movie. Yes, great movie. Uh, yeah. And so gosh. I mean <sighs> It depends. That's yeah, I, I mean, really, it kind of does. I, I mean, it, you need, I, I don't know. I really don't yeah. know. And I will tell you, I hate 
questions like this. They're just a false <laughs> dichotomy. They force you into, you know, it's like if you're in an elevator that's plummeting and blah, 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 <laughs> like, well, what would you do? Well, I do this. Well, that's not your choice. Well, you asked me what I do. I do that. Like, you know, well, I, th I think one thing that question does for us is it highlights the importance of access. Uh, absolutely. That it, absolutely. It equates, it's not that it's equal to a college education, but it's, it's, it's in the conversation. No, but but I will say this, Shane. You know what we didn't talk about today, and I am working on a, a project for later this year, the summer that I was asked to to contribute to, is the same question is applied to college education, and it's a different situation. But you know, we all generally, I think, have maybe maybe not. I don't know. Have this image of college as four year institution, blah blah blah. But you know, think about the challenges community college student yeah. might have. Um, low income, you know, community colleges are a hand up for a lot of folks, but they might not. Ha they might have the same challenges at home, getting a device or getting access, and the places that they would go to overcome that. You know, maybe they have a device. Those places are closed as well. There was a great article in I think the New York Times about a small private college back east, where on campus they they looked at three women. One came from you know a wealthier. Family family in the East Coast, one was a foreign student, and one was from a, a lower income family in like Louisiana. And on campus, they were, I think they were all on the lacrosse team together and they had a lot of similarities. Mm -hmm. COVID hit. One went to her parents' house in the Hamptons and sheltered in place there and they had a picture of the house. One was stuck on campus because they couldn't get back to Europe. And the mm -hmm. third went back and was helping their, her parents keep their food truck business going and didn't have the same kind of time to devote to school. And yeah. so, you know, even at the college level, there are challenges with the digital divide. And I would these days defy anybody to successfully navigate four years in college without broadband access. Yeah. You know, what I, I guess what I generally refer to broadband is it's I call it it's an enabling technology or an enabling device in and of itself. It doesn't do anything but it enables you to do everything. It enables you to access healthcare. It enables you to access your government. It enables you to access education. It enables you to access employment. So I, I don't know which I would give, but you know, I'm leaning towards broadband, <laughs> but uh, because at least with that, you can access the education. Yeah. But, the other hand, if you get a college education, you can raise your income. You might be able to buy the broadband on your own. So I don't know. It's it's a false dichotomy, and I'm just going to go with the yeah. It's a false dichotomy. <laughs> Broadband's an enabling technology, and there, yeah, there you go. All right. Well, thank you so much. We really thank appreciate you. it, Lloyd. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you for listening to the Insight Podcast. Please check the site website for information on submitting nominations for our site awards. Also, please check the show notes for links to Mr. Levine's research and his social media contacts. Have a great day.